0: The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York.
1: Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB, located right here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I'm Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 19th day of December, 2021. This is my final show for the year, folks. Our engineer, Brian Graves, across the way, as always. And we have a great show up ahead for you tonight. Leading off, we'll talk to... A great name in Mets history, Joe Youngblood, is going to be with us. Then we'll welcome in author Alan Hirsch. He's written a great new book titled "Baseball's Most Bizarre Plays. So we'll we'll have some fun tonight. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. As always, we got some great people, some great sports talk, some great memories up ahead. Let's talk social media for a minute. Sports Talk, uh, New York. We are on Facebook. You'll find us out there. Uh, we're on LinkedIn and also Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can follow me on Twitter at B Donahue and all past shows. If you happen to miss one, they're out on the website, uh, all cataloged out there. Nice and neat. Look him up. Listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, a really versatile ball player who uh, unfortunately played on some really bad Mets ball clubs in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. He is the only player to get a base hit for two different teams in the same day in different cities, and we'll talk to him about that. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Joel Youngblood. Joel, good evening.
2: Thank you Bill thank you for having me on your show and uh, I'm honored to be on your your last show for this year
1: It's great to have you with us Joel I'd like to uh, se- send thanks out to our friend Doug Flynn for bringing us together I've had Doug on the on the program uh, a few times in the past uh, a really great guy and he's got some great stories too so uh, give give my thanks to Doug next time you talk to him Joel I appreciate it i sure will and right, right off the bat as we say what do you think of the hiring of buck Showalter as the mets manager joel well number one
2: he has experience mm-hmm. uh he's been in the game his whole life uh so it's it's more of a veteran type move for an established organization like new york and uh i would say it's a good move and and in, in many ways and uh it always comes down to the, the team gel with the managing and coaching staff. If he can put that cohesiveness together, there's, there's potential chance for a successful season next year.
1: Hopefully uh, that's true. I was very happy with the hire. I did not think going with another guy to learn on the job was a, uh, a good way to go for the Mets. and happily they, they chose the great experience of Buck show uh, And the ownership change, uh, Joel, that that's been nothing but good so far for the Mets.
2: Well, it appears that you know they're they're doing everything they can to to bring a championship back to the New York Mets. and uh, they're willing to to spend some money also. So it's just a matter of uh, putting that puzzle together and so you can bring the joy at the end of the year.
1: Certainly, certainly true. Yes, now, as a youngster in Texas, Joel, who were who your sports heroes and, and your teams back when you were a kid?
2: Well, I, I can remember in elementary school listening to the World Series. I used to sneak the little transistor radio <laughs> in school and, and have the earphone going up on my right ear so nobody could see it on the left side. Sure. Uh, but I would, have to, I would have to say, you know, Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle, and that was the, the ones that, you know, uh, uh, Clemente, those were the three that stand out when I was a kid that I remember. Yeah. Uh, and, and also when I was in high school, I had a chance to meet Don Wilson at a, at a, a store and he called me over to his table mm-hmm. and asked me if I played baseball and I said yes. And he said, do you want an autograph? I said, sure. And I had this autograph in my room for three years. And when I signed the contract with Cincinnati, he was signing autographs at a, uh, at a store and I went over there and I walked up to the table and I said, Hey, hey Don And he says, I remember you and I told him <laughs> my find with the Reds and and you know, so it was a it was a pretty neat connection right there.
1: Definitely great story, Joe. Yeah, that must have been something. Now in in the minors or even in the majors, was there somebody, a coach or a manager who made a difference in your career?
2: Uh Ron Plaza uh with the Cincinnati Reds. Right. He was kind of the field coordinator. And uh he was he uh I I, I modeled myself after him uh with his discipline and the way that he he approached the fundamentals. It was his way or the highway and Mm -hmm. uh you know when you came up with the Reds back in the seventies it was really the old Saint Louis Cardinals Teaching that migrated to the Reds because they made a big trade with the Cardinals. And uh, so I was kind of blessed to be taught, uh, you know, from uh, Ron Plaza and the Reds organization for six years.
1: Great. Yeah, great, great man, Ron Plaza. I remember him with the Reds for sure. Now, uh, you made your debut in 1976 with the Reds. You, uh, the only game you played, you were the catcher. And to what do you owe your great versatility, Joel?
2: Well, you know, there was, when I when I signed with the Reds, I signed as a catcher.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, but, the first,
2: but the first day of spring training, they walked up over to me and they said, look, we have Johnny Bench and we have Bill Plummer. We don't need any more catchers. Mm-hmm. They said, we're going to take you to shortstop. But I, I wasn't very big. I weighed like 152 pounds, and, and I was... I was okay with anything, you know. Whatever they wanted me to do, I'd do it. And uh, uh, so I, I end up playing the infield a lot because of my size. And I moved the outfield, and the outfield was really a perfect position for me with my arm strength and all the overthrows at first base were perfect throws to cutoff, mat at home plate. But, uh, uh, you know, Johnny Bench, we're playing in Montreal and at, at Jerry Park, it's a Sunday day game. We're ahead like 7 to nothing in the second inning. So Sparky takes Johnny out of the game and puts Bill Plummer in. Bill Plummer strikes out and gets upset with the the umpire and must have said something bad to him. He got kicked out. Oh, man. And so Sparky looked at the dugout and says, Oh, my God, what am I going to do now? And I said, Well, I signed as a catcher, and I'm warming up all your pitchers. you got to let me go in. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I finished the game out seven innings. It was a shutout, seven to nothing. And, uh, and that was it. So I had, I, I caught like seven innings in the big
1: leagues. You must have done something right, Joel. That's for sure. (laughs) We're speaking with Joel Youngblood tonight on the program. Now, for the folks that remember, Joel was a part of the famous Midnight Massacre. For, for folks that may, uh, not know what that was, that was the night that Seaver was sent to the Reds. Dave Kingman was sent to the Padres, and Joel came over to the Mets from St. Louis, uh, from Mike Correct. Phillips. How did you feel Correct. about coming to New York, Joel? Well,
2: it, that's an interesting question because in '76 I was with the Reds the whole year, and uh, and I got traded to St. Louis in spring training, so I got over the being the trade, the whole trade uh, stigma. I already went through that and, uh, so my AAA manager in St. Louis was Vern Rapp. So he knew me. He had me for three years. So he told me in June 19th, he says, Joel, you're not going to get a chance to play here. I'm going to trade you to the match. And my first gut feeling was, Oh no, I was, <laughs> I got robbed there last time I was there. And, uh, but I oh, ended up, Bill, believe it or not, I, I ended up staying there and living there for like sixteen straight years. After that, I loved it there. Uh, you know, it, it was one of my—it's my favorite, my favorite organization, my favorite team to play, and my favorite fans. Uh, you know, I, I feel sorry for athletes that don't have the opportunity to play for a New York franchise because it is—it is, it is a blessing in disguise.
1: That's a, that's a wonderful story, Joel. I, I never would have figured that. Uh, that, that's, that's sensational. And, uh, for folks who may not know, Joel was added to the active roster because player manager at that time, Joe Torrey retired as a player and just, uh, assumed the reins as skipper of the Mets. Did you see him as a Hall of Fame success that he became back then, Joel?
2: Absolutely, Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been very vocal about my uh, <clears throat> my my thoughts about Joe Torre. I, I've always felt that he was my best manager. He was he, he could really talk to the players, and he he'd give you the benefit of the doubt, and he was just fair. I, that's all I can say. He was fair, and uh, he was just a uh, you know I was lucky to play for him. You know I know that I was young and probably wasn't the the, the role model that he wanted me to be at that time and that age. And I saw him when he was managing for LA and in the, in the, w- the workout room when I was a coach in the big leagues with the Diamondbacks. And I walked over and I said, Joel, I want to apologize to you, you know, for the way I acted. And he said, don't worry about it, Joel. Everybody's young at one time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I told him, I said, you know, you're my favorite manager. And he says, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and So we smiled and, you know, hugged and talked to each other. And, uh, but, He's a special person, you know, and he was always going to bring the most, the best out of you. You always wanted to play hard for him, and uh, that was—it was not hard to play hard for Joe Torrey.
1: A, a Hall of Fame player. I, I would think too, D- darn close to it, that's for sure. Now, you emerged, Joel, as somewhat of a star on that Mets ball club back back in those days. Uh, throughout your time here in New York. Uh, you, you were the sole representative in the 81 All-Star game for the Mets. Were you comfortable in that role? You know,
2: um, yes, I was. And, and, and Bill, you know, I, I, I've had some success with, when I was with the Mets. Uh, you know, and I'm just kind of disappointed in myself for not continuing that success every year. It's just one thing when players say, I'm a 300 hitter, you, you know, I don't want to hear it, I want to see it. Don't tell me, show me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and the bottom line is, you know, I didn't play up to my expectations. I thought I could because when I had success, I didn't work as hard in the wintertime as I did when I didn't have success. And so that's probably why I had the up and down career like I did instead of, you know, the straight horizontal career. But, uh, it, it uh, you know, it's just one of those things I was expecting. Was I was I had, I had the ability to play multiple positions I felt comfortable at multiple positions. I think I was a better outfielder than I was an infielder, but I still think I could have played the infield uh so it it's it's kind of you know i mean if you think about it, I only played the infield three three maybe four or five months in the minor leagues before I got to the big leagues so all those days I was playing the infield I had no experience
1: <laughs> boy we you know are... and
2: so uh it's, it's you know, it's just, you just kind of, you know, if I would do it all over again, I probably would have played third base more or had a better open, a more open mind about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, um, I just knew I, I was, very, I, I felt very confident in myself in the outfield. And I thought I, my career would be more successful if I played the outfield.
1: We are speaking with Joel Youngblood tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, Shea Stadium in those days, Joel, was known as Grant's Tomb after uh, M. Donald Grant, uh, sparse crowds. What was it like in the clubhouse during those uh, times? Was it difficult? Were were the guys focused? Was it drudgery? What was it like? Well, number one is
2: all the clubhouses were the same type of atmosphere as far as what the lockers looked like and everything so regardless which clubhouse you were in i think the majority of all the players especially back in the old days uh would come to the clubhouse and stir it up a little bit have Mm -hmm. fun talk to each other you know and and just you know just come together as a team before the game starts and you really you really need that uh you know nowadays it seems like Everybody's on their iPhones. Nobody's talking. You know, it's, it's, you know, I I think, I think the communication between the teammates is starting to to fade away a little bit. Uh, but it, you know, I enjoyed those times. I enjoyed after a game going to a, a, a room, you know, when we were on the road with six guys and talk about hitting, talk about the pitcher that pitched, you know, and just talk about the game. You know, we did that quite a bit. We'd stay in the clubhouse for three, or four hours after the game and talk baseball.
1: Yeah, like you say, that's gone. It's a different time, Joel. That's that—that's yeah. for sure. Well, following Joel tonight, uh, as I mentioned, we have Alan Hirsch, an author who's written a book about bizarre plays in baseball history. Now, on August 4, 1982, I, I wouldn't say it was bizarre, but definitely most uh, unusual and definitely amazing. Joel became the only player in baseball history to get base hits for two different teams in two different cities on the same day. Now let's talk about August 4th, 1982, Joel. I think the folks would like to hear it from you. You started the day as the starting center fielder for the Mets on the road in Chicago against the Cubs. And as we know back then, only day games in Wrigley Field, no lights. So in the third inning, you get a hit off a future Hall of Famer that, that we, we didn't know back then it would be a Hall of Famer, Ferguson Jenkins. Two-run single, and you're on deck for the next inning when you get called back. Take it from there.
2: Well, I'm going to take it back just a little bit longer. Sure. Go ahead, Joel. Yeah. It's a Saturday day game. Mm -hmm. So when I leave the hotel at 8.30 in the morning to go to the the Wrigley Field for a 1 o'clock game, my, my room's not packed. So I'm not expecting to leave. So I go to the ballpark, I'm there early, I go through batting practice, I'm playing the game, and, and I, I, I'm having success and I get taken out of the game and, you know, and I, and I, I go, why are you taking me out of the game? And they say, well, Joel, you've just been traded to the Montreal Expos. They're in Philadelphia and they're sharp players. They, They asked me to ask you if you could try to get there to help them out. And I said, absolutely, I'll do my best. Mm-hmm. So I would say the game started at 1.05, let's say 2.05, 2.30, maybe quarter to three. got to go tell everybody goodbye, go inside, take a shower, pack my bags, pay my incidentals, go outside, get a cab, go to the hotel, go up in my room, pack my bags, go downstairs, pay my incidentals, get back in another cab with all my uh, bag, baggage. And and I don't, there's only one flight I can catch. It's 6.05. Okay. So if I left the ballpark at 3 o'clock and go back to the hotel, so it's 4.30, 4.45, 5 o'clock. I, I, we're on the way to uh, O'Hare, and I, I realized I left my glove on the facing of Wrigley Field. And I was, oh, oh, no.
1: Man.
2: So I told the cabbie to go back to the Wrigley Field. I ran inside. I waved everybody. I grabbed my glove, and I took off, and I ran outside, got back in the cab. I told the cabby, I said, if you get me to the airport, I'll give you a big tip. (laughs) (laughs) So we're, we're going back roads and and honestly, I made it about 20 minutes before the flight left. I ran in, checked in, checked my bags. I got to, you know, got to the plane, got on the plane and I said, okay, I'm going to make it, but my bags aren't going to make it, you know, and so if it's 605 flight, that means 705 Philly time is two hour flight. I land at 905. Now I'm waiting for my baggage. It's going around and around and around. I finally <laughs> see one. They both come up. I get my bags. I go out. I get in another cab. I go to Veteran Stadium. Go down the elevator. Go in the clubhouse. My uniform's there. I put my uniform on. I went outside and I laid on Veteran Field like Pete Rose does, and I waved at Pete. You know because I played <laughs> with him and he was my right. And right after, I, right after I did, right after I waved to him. You know, Fanning said, "Youngblood, get up! You're your, your hitting." I said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> so that was about nine forty-five,
1: <laughs> and and then pinch hitting as as uh, Joel says, Jim Fanning calls on him to pinch hit. Another future Hall of Famer is on the hill for the Philadelphia Phillies, lefty Steve Carlton, and what do you do, Joel?
2: I get, a, I get a ground ball up the middle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it wasn't a solid hit, but it was a base hit. And in baseball, we don't care how, what they look like. as long as count. Right. But, you know, talking, talking about Steve Carlton, uh, you know, when Steve, when I was with the minor leagues in Cincinnati, I was in Tampa. The Phillies were in Clearwater. It was really close to
1: Tampa. Right, yeah. So when,
2: when, when Steve was supposed to, supposed to pitch on the road, he would always come to Redsland and throw to me, Griffey, Dreeson, and, and Tom Spencer, or somebody else at like at eight o'clock in the morning. So Steve Carlton had already struck me out probably 50 times <laughs> before I even got to the big league. So I I, 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 saw him quite a bit, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. Yeah. So I knew what I, I knew what I couldn't hit and I knew what I could hit. So that, that gave me an advantage.
1: There you go, folks. No one has accomplished this feat since then. Joel Youngblood, the only man to do that. Now, the media coverage, Joel, how was it back then, and how do you think it would have been handled today?
2: Well, you know, it was kind of interesting. I got a couple of phone calls the next morning uh, from newscasters and asking me questions. Do you know what you did? And I said, I got two base hits, you know, and, you know, and that was two base hits to me. And, uh, you know, and they said, oh no, it's, you know, but it, honestly, Bill, it didn't, it didn't seem like any big deal. But when you consider the difficulty that the morning and night and the travel and, and it was difficult and, and, and the odds of baseball, uh, going against you as, as a successful hitter, you know, I, I was only up, uh, was it only twice that day, or three times?
1: I, th- I think it was only twice.
2: Yeah. So, so if you think about the odds, you know, yeah, the odds of of, of getting a base hit one attempt in the morning and one attempt at the night. You know, uh, I, I had I had uh, luck on my side, obviously.
1: You were lucky, even Joel, to make it to the ballpark that night. I mean, never, never mind getting a base hit. You were lucky you made it to Philadelphia.
2: Yeah, well, you know, that's if 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 people know me, they you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and and when an organization goes out and and, and makes a statement, says, you know, we want you, uh, you know, and they asked me to try to get there. Oh, I'm going to get there. Mm-hmm. If I if I can do it on my own will, I will get there. I'm not going to neglect and not show up because I'm too lazy, or I don't want to do it, or I'm tired. Uh, that's not, that's not the way it, my my game works. But uh, uh, yeah. but now now I look back, and this is the good news about it, Bill. I'll be remembered for something. <laughs>
1: You will. Yeah. And, and like we say, that you got a few phone calls back then, but today you'd be all over Twitter. You'd be on YouTube. Forget it. The, 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 this would be all over the place. You, you would, you'd be blown much more, uh, up than, than you were then, Joel, if, if you did that today. It's amazing. Joel Youngblood's our guest tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, was this easily the greatest thrill of your career, Joel? Oh no. No, okay. You know, you
2: know, you know something. I mean, I I would have to say, I I would, opening day in Shea Stadium, uh, 83, 84, maybe 85. No, let me see. 79, 80. Okay. I was a starting, starting right fielder. And in in the ninth inning, I caught a ball over the fence and brought it back in. The score was one to nothing. Larry Bittner with a runner on first hit a, hit a, we were playing Chicago, Mm -hmm. hit a home run and I went over right field and and brought it back. And I got a standing ovation from the fans in Shea Stadium. That, that right there was my most memorable moment in my career. Nice. Is, 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 is having a, a total, uh, applause for the effort and the, and the, what you're willing to do you know to play hard for your organization and your and your fans uh so I think that was my biggest I'll always remember that it it, it touched my
1: heart well uh, what they say is true, Joel if you do it here, you can do it anywhere uh if you bust it, the people will appreciate that but if you if you dock it dog it, they're gonna let you know that's for sure yeah.
2: Well, there's one thing I knew about New York: either they love you or they hate you, and I didn't want. There's no in between, so I just had to make sure they love me. I played hard.
1: That's <laughs> all. Yeah. Now, who would you say through the years your best teammate was, Joel? Oh, the Mets. I, anywhere, anywhere through throughout your career. Oh
2: well, I mean, well, you know, Doug Flynn. You mentioned his name earlier, right? You know, he was. He, him and I, we played together on three different organizations. We played together in the minor leagues together. You know, we almost kind of followed each other. We played together in Venezuela together. You know, I mean, we were both single together in the major leagues. We, you know, we just, uh, we lived together in spring training on the beach. You know, I would have to say that, uh, you know, Doug Flynn was, was somebody that I probably, uh, and Lay Knight was a very good friend of mine also. Uh, Ray was one of my roommate, but he wasn't, age-wise, with me as much as Doug Flynn was. Mm-hmm. I didn't play with Ray as much. I think I played one year in the major leagues and a couple years in the minor leagues, and we played together in, in Dominican together. Uh, but uh, I would say Doug and Ray. Gotcha. And, uh, honestly, King Griffey was a real good friend of mine, too, King Griffey Sr.
1: Good man, uh, yeah. In,
2: in my early years, and him and I got along super great. He was my roommate my first three years, um, so...
1: Tell us, Joel, about your coaching career. I know you, you were with the D-backs for a number of years. Uh, what, what made you decide to get into coaching? And tell us a little bit about your coaching career.
2: Okay. Well, Bill, number one is my love for the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if, you know if I, if I were to talk about my education, you know, I played 21 years professionally. And then I coached for like 25 to 26 years. Uh, I, I wanted to give back. I wanted to help players shorten the gap of their learning curve. You know, uh, I, I feel that we didn't have coaches when I played. We had a manager, and that was it. And you were virtually on your own. Yeah. And if you didn't watch people, you know, and try to learn visually what they were doing, you would be lost. But I wanted to cut that gap. I wanted to, you know, if you can control the way you think, you can control the way you play. So it was my job to teach players how to think so they could get the, the results necessary to be a competent player through their practice. And so it's more like teaching them how to be successful mentally first so they can adapt that their phys- physical approach. And, uh, uh, you know, it takes time to learn how to coach. I think it took me... Oh, I would say 13 years in the minor leagues coaching, six years in corporate America as sales, Mm -hmm. and then coming back to baseball for another 13 years. When I came back to baseball, I believe in 2004, that's when I was my best coach. Because I went through all the ideas and thoughts and all the things and I worked on my, on my, 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 my uh, skill set to, to to communicate a fundamental that somebody could understand what I was actually saying, you know, versus what they what I was feeling. And so I, I, I really enjoyed Bill coaching. Um, you know I've I've been around I've had a lot I've been lucky, I've had a lot of players in my coaching career. I mean Michael Brantley, Lorenzo Kane, you know, Pollock, Eaton NCRT, Goldsmith, Owens—I mean, there's just been a lot of players that I've been around that had tremendous value, and I was able to maybe help in five percent of their game, or two percent, or one percent, you know. But it, it, any any percent to help them become a better player and, and have success in the game—that's what a coach is about. He's about teaching the uh, the finer points of of. What it really means to, to, what does timing mean, you know, as a hitter? You know, you hear everybody talk about timing. You know, mm-hmm. they always talk about their foot or this or that. It's real simple, Bill. Timing is simply when you decide to attack the ball. Mm-hmm. So it's either yeah, now, or no. That's timing. Right. When you say now, when your body reacts, that's all timing is. You know, you don't have to be complicated. It's not a thought process. It's just when you decide to go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and you just kind of simplify it to these players and not make it so complicated, but make sense. Right. Validate what you say. Tell them this is the way I teach it, and this is the reason why I teach it this way. You know, you just don't say do it this way. No, no, no. You, you don't understand what you don't. You don't, know what, you don't even know what you're doing. You say this is the way we do it, and this is the reason why we do it this way. If you can convince me there's a better way, then I will change what I'm teaching. But you have to bring it to the table and show me.
1: Great points, great points, Joe Youngblood. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. So, and th- thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some of it with us back up here in cold New York.
2: Well, thank you for even considering having me on your show, and I wish you the very best and a happy see- happy. Uh, holidays, And I wish all the fans in New York the same wishes and blessings. Thank,
1: Thank you, you so you much.
2: Take
1: you take Good care. Time. That's Joe Youngbud, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll talk with author Alan Hirsch about his new book on some bizarre happenings in baseball. Stick around, folks.
0: You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB.
1: And now, back to the show. All right, folks, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB. But we waited for the Mets to name their new manager. They did it, and they hit a home run, that's for sure. I was hoping for Buck Walter all, all the way This way, there will always be at least two Seinfeld stars in the ballpark at at all times. All bases are covered. I knew, can't get it wrong. Can't get this wrong. No guy's learning on a job anymore. Let's get a a, a veteran guy in there, a baseball man. They did that. And uh, can't get over the Hall of Fame vote. Finally, Gil Hodges will enter through the hallowed portals up in the little village in New, upstate New York, Cooperstown. Uh, we'll have Bob Clappish back with us probably to talk about the Hall of Fame vote, the, the uh, Baseball Writers Association coming up in January. But right now we will carry on. Our next guest, he's the chair of the Justice and Law Studies Program at Williams College. He's written numerous books and been published in the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, the Washington Times, Newsday, and the Village Voice, among many others. He's got a new book out called Baseball's Most Bizarre Plays, a roster of the odd, the improbable, and the downright confounding in Major League history. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Alan Hirsch. Alan, good evening.
0: Good evening. Thanks for having me.
1: It's wonderful to have you. First of all, let's give a shout out to our mutual friend, uh, whom I know from Oswego, the great soccer star Rob Zabronsky Rob Zabronski. Easy for you to say. I met him uh over forty years ago. Of course I was just born then. Uh, He was one of my babysitters. Rob's uh, quite older uh, than I am, and uh, he won't admit that, but he is. How far back do you go with baseball, Alan, and uh, who are you a fan of?
0: So, Bill, I thought you were going to ask me how far do I go back with Rob Zabronski. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't
1: don't know if that's a sore spot or not.
0: (laughs) The answer to both questions is probably too long. Uh, but. a good 55 years or so. Yeah. And as for who I root for these days, I would say, at uh, the risk of getting myself in trouble with you, whoever plays the Yankees.
1: Oh, no, I'm a Mets and, fan. Yeah, I, okay. uh, I'm I'm with you on that one, brother. Yeah, that's for sure. I grew up a big Yankees fan, and George Steinbrenner
0: just turned me off them completely and forever. And I'm wow. also a bit of a contrarian. I live in New England, so I also root for whoever plays the Red Sox.
1: Okay, yeah. Uh, that's fair enough, but, uh, I'm surprised to hear you say that. You, you have to be one in a million, uh, to, to turn away from the Yankees like that. There's plenty that turn to the Yankees, like I always say. The bandwagon jumpers are, are, there's a plethora out there. And, uh,
0: Oh, I, I, yeah, I'm the one who, I was the rat who jumped off the beautiful yeah.
1: yacht. Yeah. Good Something for you. Something like that. <laughs> well, what's your greatest memory in, uh, in baseball, Alan?
0: Oh, boy, I, I'll say this. I'm, I'd am i be hard-pressed to come up with one which I witnessed personally. I'm one of those unlucky guys. I'd go to bowl games and they'd be rain out. Um, oh, yeah. But in in terms of uh, stuff I've researched, read about, uh, one of my favorites is the Mark Bromberry story, which you, you, you've probably heard, in which he hits a triple. Yeah. That's the lovable loser of the Mets. And he is called out on a field play because he missed first base. Right And Casey Stengel comes charging out of the dugout, but he gets intercepted by the first base coach. He says, don't bother arguing, Casey. He missed second, too.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so part of the beauty of this book is I got to research things like that, and it wasn't too hard to find the box score of that game. And lo and behold, Mark Thornberry went over for 5, struck out with the time run scoring position in the ninth inning, and made three errors. And so I'd say that game is a pretty good candidate for the worst game ever, but it turns out I can give you one or two guys who have that beat. But I'll stop for there. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that 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 is a great story about marvelous Marv. That's for sure, Alan. Now, this book, folks, it's got a hundred and fifty. Bizarre plays Alan describes uh, throughout the history of the game. Uh, Todd Frazier tricking the umpires. We got uh, Al, the mad hung- Hungarian Hrabowski. Uh we- We'll just talk about a few of them tonight. Let's see. Uh, let's start with Todd Frazier. Let uh, go go into the uh, Todd Frazier tricking the umpires, Alan.
0: Todd Frazier goes into the crowd, makes a diving try. You know, we've seen plays like that. Right. Uh, he, 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 fans help him up. He makes sure he hasn't anyone too bad. And he holds up his glove, and he's got the ball, and he jumps out into the ball field and shows the ump the ball very quickly, and the ump calls the batter out, and then Frazier gets rid of the ball, which turns out was a rubber ball <laughs> that he picked up in the crowd. He, he never caught the real baseball. But uh, we know that they they figured that out from video replay, but the umpire never caught on. So he made a catch, that a non-catch.
1: Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Todd Frazier. But that's
0: only play number 150. I mean, that's just the amazing thing is baseball is just a bottomless pit of truly amazing plays. I was thinking of the top 20 plays in the book, uh-huh. I honestly think if you or I were to tell people about it, they wouldn't believe it. Right. And so for every play, I supply the box to the date, rather, you know, date, place, teams, and uh, so people can look it up and see for themselves.
1: Yeah, there's one happening almost every every game. I mean, you, you watch, uh, what is it, Quick Pitch on uh, the MLB Network every morning with Heidi Watney, and uh, th- they show the highlights. Uh, it's an hour-long show, the highlights of every major league game from the night before, and you'll see something weird almost every day. A famous clip I remember, and you chronicle this in the book, Alan, is Tommy Lasorda doing a somersault. Let's talk about that one. So I
0: think that's play 148. We still haven't gotten to the really juicy stuff. But, yeah, Tommy Lasorda wanted to be a coach in an All-Star game when he was 74 years old. He was no longer (laughs) even managing the Dodgers, but they sort of made him the honorary third base coach and Vlad Guerrero loses his bat, and it goes sailing out towards Lasorda, who just does this head-over-heel somersault, loses his cap, and uh, just just an amazing sight to see the 75-year-old guy doing acrobatics on the field.
1: Definitely, yeah. I remember that clip, and the the one Tommy Lasorda clip that I love is uh, the fight he had with the Philly Uh, (laughs) Fanatic. The the Philly Fanatic was giving him crap about uh, being a little overweight, and he he looked like he was going to burn a dodger player in effigy and lasorda starts wheeling away his uh, his quad and the uh the fanatic loses interest in the dodger dummy tommy grabs it and the, the thing i love about it Alan, is that that final last swipe that he takes at the fanatic uh on his way off the field <laughs> and the fanatic gets ejected uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: a mascot ejection and i think that game ends up going 20 innings so the fanatic missed uh, working overtime but that's the thing about baseball what other sport do you get plays involving mascots and uh, just <laughs> yeah. all sorts of things fans and animals and coaches and you know equipment and uh, time tar and dugouts and You name it. it's just so many elements in baseball, and they sometimes combine in ways that are just unthinkable.
1: Now, uh, of all the 150 that you chronicle, Alan, Alan Hirsch with us tonight talking about his new book about bizarre plays throughout the history of baseball. What happens to be your favorite one out of the 150?
0: Well, you know, the easy answer would be to say number one. Um, okay. But I'm not even going to try to describe that. You really just cannot believe it until you see it or read about it. So let's put that one aside. Right, let's a, let, a let the readers. Favorite.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, a, a personal favorite is David Hulse, uh batter for the, uh, the Indians. I mean, bat, it hits a line drop into the dugout, and it clears the Angels. And then next pitch, he hits it in the same spot. So now at this point, they're all crowding on one side of the dugout. They're waving the white flag in surrender. You know, everyone's cracking up. <laughs> and lo and behold, he hits the next pitch, the third pitch, right into the same spot in the dugout. And would you believe it if I told you he hit the fourth pitch into the dugout? And if we were just to talk, I, I particularly like some of these foul balls. Richie Ashburn, in the game in 1957, hits a poor woman named Alice Roth, a spectator. All right. Oh, right. Hits her, the foul ball hits her, breaks her nose. And there's a quite a long delay. About 10 minutes later, they're hauling her off in a stretcher. Play is resumed, and the next pitch, Richie Ashburn hits a foul ball that hits Alice Roth, who's on a stretcher, in the hip. <laughs> and, and then I can tell you, she's not even the unluckiest spectator. Bob Feller, his mother, traveled hundreds of miles to see him pitch. And he, she gets themed and taken to the hospital. And this was on Mother's Day.
1: Oh man, <laughs> not a not a good day. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and and you know history repeats itself. And Denard Spann, in 2010 hit a line drive that hit his own mother in the crowd.
1: Now that's not nice.
0: And you probably don't. Know, <laughs> the funny thing about that is it happened on March 31st. So this got reported in newspapers on April 1st. Right, And I'm just sure that people all over the country thought this was an April
1: Fool's show. For for sure, yeah, that's a great point, Alan. That's right. Okay, let's talk about this one. I I, I enjoyed this one because it uh, involves two old Mets from the days, just before they start becoming a a serious ball club. Two legendary names, of of course we know Ron Swoboda, but Jerry Buchek. Uh, second baseman, uh, infielder for the, for that ball club, uh, the New York Mets ball club. Uh, talk about that number 143, ump struck.
0: Yeah, so this is a ball that hits the umpire, and that causes mass confusion. I, again, it's one I don't even want to try to go into details because I'd lose your readers, but it turns <laughs> out that a ball that hits the umpire... What oh, was the odd Well, you have the book in front of you. I can't even remember, but I think it was uh, after the play they had to undo the damage.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. Unbelievable. An- another unreal play. Uh, Alan Hirsch is with us tonight. We're talking about his book, uh, Baseball's Most Bizarre Plays. Do you have any that uh, involve Teddy Ballgame, Ted Williams?
0: Uh, Well, so there is a play. It doesn't make my list, but I do talk about it. Accompanying each play, I talk about things that these plays remind me of. Mm -hmm. And poor Ted Williams once had a collision with the center fielder. They both went down, and it led to an inside-the-park home run on what was really a routine fly ball that either of the two could have caught. And Williams was knocked unconscious and had his jaw broken. But that does lead to a discussion of plays that were legitimately funny inside-the-park home runs. So Bill Buckner... We think of as the, the, the unlucky guy, who right. the Red Sox, the 1986 World Series. Uh-huh. The only inside the park home run in his 20 year career came when uh, the right fielder tumbled into the stands and never recovered. This was like out of a professional wrestler being thrown out of the ring. And the ball just lay there in the field, untouched, and Buckner hobbled around the bases. He was 40 years old at this time. And that was about the only way he could possibly have gotten it inside the park home run. Uh, right. But, you know, there there any other – well, to this, Net fans may have fond memories of him, but there was a ball which he stopped playing, claiming that it was under the wall where he couldn't get it out. So he signals the umpire, he puts his hands up, you know, this should be a ground rule double. Meanwhile, AJV to the Astros just keeps circling the bases. And it's an inside the park home run and the umpire just goes out there and he demonstrates to Cespedes and everybody else that the ball wasn't stuck under the fence. (laughs) Cespedes is sort of I guess
1: you'd call it a home run by a defensive indifference. Yeah, yeah exactly. for this, there's a name that'll uh, live long in, in Mets lore. Now, we often talk about uh, power hitters, Allen ripping the cover off the ball. Now, <laughs> Candy Maldonado, the immortal Candy Maldonado, actually did that, didn't he? He did. He hit a,
0: a ground ball to third. And the third baseman throws it to first, and it's a seven-hopper. It's the worst throw you've ever seen. It looks like it's out of Little League, but it <laughs> turns out the cover has literally been hit, knocked off the baseball. So the fourth third baseman was throwing the ball uh, that didn't have a cover on it. And that was honestly about the only way Maldonado could get an infield hit short of divine intervention.
1: Right. Then uh, w- one obvious one we talk about, and and you mention it, is Randy Johnson. Destroying a bird. I mean, uh, yeah, we we had uh, previously in in Toronto we had uh, Dave Winfield. Uh, I don't know if he, I forget if he was arrested or not for he was, yeah, for clipping a seagull up up in Toronto. And now we have Randy Johnson minding his own business, not not going out of his way to do anything. Here comes a bird, he happens to hit it, and the thing it just disintegrates.
0: Oh, that's an amazing sight, and it's play <laughs> number 75. Yeah. The one you mentioned with Dave Winfield, my favorite part of that is after the game, Billy Martin said that's the only time he hits a cutoff man all year, referring <laughs> yeah. to the pigeon that he, that he killed. Um, it turns out that there's another play in which a pigeon gets hit while the ball's in play. It's less famous than the Randy Johnson play, but it cost the Mets a game where it could have. A player on the Braves, Deion James, it's a routine fly to left, it strikes a pigeon, and both ball and pigeon go straight down, and he ends up with an important, a, a run-producing double. And that game actually shows up in the Dowd report dealing with Pete Rose's sins because Rose bet more money on that game than any other game. Wow, yeah, <laughs> that, that's there's, a great. There's a lot of you know, if you yeah. like this sort of miscellany, you know, obviously the, the book is full of that kind of thing.
1: A lot, a lot of. Useless information, folks, that you will enjoy. And, uh, one thing we specialize in on, on our show is, uh, useful, useless information that, and I, I tend to be the master of that. Now, Javier Baez, who the Mets let get away to the, uh, to the, uh, Detroit Tigers, number 126, his magic wand.
0: Yeah, Baez, there are any number of players who have hit balls that bounce. Rod Guerrero did that a bunch. They just swing at anything, and occasionally they manage to hit a ball that bounced in the dirt. And, of course, there are players who throw their bat at a ball and uh, and hit it to break up, you know, on a hit-and-run play, on a pitch-out, that sort of thing. Baez once did both. He threw his bat at a bouncing ball, and I think collected a double on the play, if I remember correctly.
1: Okay. Amazing. Now, one guy I want to talk about, Mike Vail. Uh, <laughs> he had the record for hitting streak, uh, I think by a rookie for the Mets. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, he's, he's one of the few guys that wanted to charge me for an interview on the radio. Uh, the other one was Ellis Valentine. Both guys are, uh, of course, in great, great demand. And you can see how they, you know, <laughs> Want, want to, you know, make some money on the side here, but talk a little bit about, uh, to no avail.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the name. We, we give each of the plays a funny name. It's, and, it's uh, just, very I'll clever. Hope you, yeah. I'll, I'll help you get even with Mike Vale. There's <laughs> just a play in which he drops a routine fly ball and then immediately picks it up and throws home to try to catch the runner and start it at second. And this throw is so far off that it beats the bat boy in the head. <laughs> Fortunately, no one except Vail was hurt on the play.
1: Yeah. Okay. That the evil Mike Vale. Now, <laughs> the, there's a play. It's uh, a incident one twenty one. Uh, we'll call it nine two six three two. If you're scoring, like they say uh, on TV, Dave uh, Dave Gallagher, Willie Randolph, and Hall of Famer Larry Walker.
0: Yeah. So the thing I remember about that play is it ends up that you, the box score gives you the two and the two. This is a play in which the catcher makes two putouts on the same play. And I've got another play later in the book where the same thing happens except the second putout is made at third base.
1: Amazing. And we actually have
0: one play at the top 20 play which has one of those crazy if you're scoring it's 9263523 hike and <laughs> the center fielder ends up making the tag at third base. Player named High Myers of the old Brooklyn Robins, and uh, that, that's one just try to picture. I got another play where center fielder, I uh, Gary Matthews or it might have been Gary Maddox, one of those Phillies, uh, charges all the way in from center field to make a tag on a runner rounding third and about to score. And after all going all that distance, he drops the ball on the tag, allowing the runner to score.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the oldest bizarre play that you have in the book, Alan?
0: Wow. So there are a few in the 19th century. Okay. There was a player in Germany, Sinead Schaefer, who was in a rundown between home and first. I think he bunted the ball, the first base picked it up, and instead of going to first base, he wanted to tag Schaefer. And Schaefer just puts it in reverse and heads <laughs> to home play, and then he starts running to third. And then he starts running to second. And they have him in a a pickle between second and third where he gets tagged out, having run 270 feet in the wrong direction.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Something to be proud of, that's for sure. Now, we're talking to Alan Hirsch tonight about his book on most bizarre plays in baseball history, Tricky Rice, number 114. That involves the Iron Horse himself. No one's exempt from a bizarre play, Lou Gehrig.
0: Yeah, so Gehrig hits a, are we talking about the play where Gehrig hits a home run and he passes the runner who, for some inexplicable reason, thought the ball was caught, caught and started heading back home. And, uh, Gehrig, I think, is also in the book for a play where there are two plays at home plate. And it turns out there are, I uncovered six of these plays in Major League history where two runners arrive at home at basically the same time, the runner from third and the runner from second. And it's a close play on both of them. And my favorite one of those, I believe it was played in 1940 with the Dodgers against, I don't remember exactly the details, but the catcher slaps the peg on the first runner, the umpire says safe. Peg on the second runner, the umpire says out. They're both close most plays, you get one out and one run scored, both managers storm out of the dugout and start arguing with the poor umpire simultaneously. One manager saying, two runs, no outs, and the other manager saying, two outs, no runs, and uh, there you have
1: it. That's something that you'd pay to see, Alan, That's, that's for sure. Two well, managers. You know, yeah. to,
0: I'm, sorry. Oh, I'm just man. to say the cliche that you see something new every game. Yeah. I'm not sure that it's literally true, but it's certainly true that there is just a lot of wacky stuff that happens on the diamond.
1: And uh, Alan Hirsch chronicles 150 of these incidents, as I call them in Major League Baseball. How about the quadruple steal?
0: Yeah, so you know I'm nervous that if you keep going you're going to hit one that I don't remember, but so okay, far, don't worry, tough. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty Vince, to choose from. <laughs> right. So Vince Coleman and Willie McGee, two speedsters for the Cardinals, start to play on first and second and end up to play with Coleman on third and McGee having scored, that's four stolen bases if you're scoring. And I won't go into how that happened because it would take too long, but legitimately you had a double-double steal or a quadruple steal. And believe it or not, there is a game in the 1930s where you have a straight triple steal. We're not talking about rundowns. We're not (laughs) talking about anything fancy, a delayed steal. Just on the pitch, all three runners are going, and they all make it triple steal. But here's the really bizarre thing. The Philadelphia Athletics who did that, three innings later, did
1: it again? Oh, man. Unbelievable. Who would have thunk it? That's for sure. Now, a, a play involving one of my favorite Hall of Famers. They called him Double X, Jimmy Fox. Uh, Sly yeah. Fox, number 108.
0: Yeah, so this is a play in which you have uh, runners on first and second, and they're both stealing second and third, and the batter strikes out, but the ball... It hits the ground before it hits the plate. So the catcher could tag him out for the third out or throw to first for the third out, but instead throws to third, trying to get Fox to steal it. And uh, everybody's safe as a result of a strikeout.
1: Okay, that, that's Jimmy Fox. Now, one of the more famous ones, Alan, in baseball history that every almost every fan has heard about, and Beavis and Butthead would have a, uh, a field day with what we call Merkel's boner.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what's so famous about that is it happens in the World Series. Right. And on the, game, on the game-winning hit, Fred Merkel, who starts at first base, doesn't bother to go to second. Because in those days it was it wasn't uncommon to do that. He just veers off and runs into the clubhouse because the fans are just pouring on the field and you don't want to get mobbed. But uh Johnny Everett, this super alert second baseman of famous from tickets to Everett to chance, calls for the ball and eventually tags second baseman so they get the fourth out on Merkel since he never touched second second base, uh, preventing the winning run from scoring. But the bizarre thing about this is it's not nearly that simple. Because by the time Evers realizes that Merkel hasn't touched second base, no one even knows where the ball is. I mean, it's been hit into the outfield. It was this game-winning hit. So, Evers is trying desperately to retrieve the ball. Players on the uh, on Merkel's team see what's going on. They're trying to find him in the dugout. The ball (laughs) gets thrown in, and the third base coach, Iron Man Joe McGinnity, you can't make this stuff up. Right. As legend has it, he intercepts the throw. He sees what Evers is up to, and he throws the ball over into the left field bleachers. Uh, but eventually, Evers brings the home plate umpire over to second base, and he says, "Look, you know as well as I do, Lurk will never touch second base. I'm stepping on the base. I've got a ball in my hand. He's out." Right, and the umpire agreed. And wouldn't you know it? You ended up a tie between these two teams, so they ended up a playoff game as a result. And Fred Merkel, who had a great career. Is only remembered for Merkel's
1: boner. That that that's a damn shame, that's for sure. Well, Alan Hirsch, been a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us back here on the island. The book again, folks, is titled Baseball's Most Bizarre Plays, A Roster of the Odd, The Improbable, and the Downright Confounding in Major League History. Thanks, Alan. You stay well. Thanks very much, Bill. Enjoyed it. All the best. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York for 2021. I'd like to thank my guests, Joe Youngblood and Alan Hirsch, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us this year. Rob Kramer. My buddy Rob is up next on Sports Talk New York, so stay put. See you on the radio again in January, folks. Till then, be safe be well bill donahue wishing you happy holidays and a good evening folks
0: In the previous program, did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.